You are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church Carlisle, a local church in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. For more information about the life of our church, visit us at SojournCarlisle.com. called the Herodians. The Herodians are basically the followers of Herod, who is the appointed ruler by Rome. So you may say that these are like Roman sympathizers. You have Jesus and his followers, and you have the average people. So we have in, in Jerusalem at this day, we have many different groups, different belief systems, I would say even different cultures within the culture of Jerusalem. And I want to draw upon that in my message today in the sense that in our community, we have many different groups, different ideologies, different cultures, but we can still be one body. And so this is where I want us to focus on today. So with that being said, let's turn to Nicodemus. We saw that Jesus cleansed the temple. People started believing in him, so Nicodemus comes by night. Now, some of the commentaries I'm reading are wondering, is Nicodemus a good guy or a bad guy? You know, Jesus teaches us that nothing good happens at night. All that's evil is done in the darkness. So why is Nicodemus coming in the darkness? We also know that Nicodemus, or we we see Nicodemus coming alone, not in the company of other Pharisees or other religious people. He's coming to seek of Jesus. Is he coming to test Jesus? Or is he coming to learn from Jesus? I've done a word study on this, and the word for Pharisee here is used 24 times in the four Gospels. Three times in reference to Nicodemus, and we're going to look at all of them in the Gospel of John. But I like to break down into three categories, Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. The first category, Jesus is compared to the Pharisees. An example of that comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, which state, Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the groom cannot mourn as long as the groom is with them. Can they? But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So the Pharisees had their religious order. John's disciples had their religious order. And they followed a, a very strict code that they were to fast on certain days, And they were observing that. It was a formal rule, a formal structure that they followed, but they saw Jesus doing something different. And it made them curious. You may recall John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming for his baptism, said, he must be greater, I must be less. So John's disciples needed to learn to be like Jesus, not like John. So that's the first type of interaction we see Jesus being compared with the Pharisees. The second type of interaction we see, Jesus warns his disciples about what the Pharisees are teaching. 
An example of that can come from Matthew chapter 16, verses 5 through, I'm sorry, Mark 12, 13 through 15. Oh, sorry, I'm right the first one. Matthew 6, 16, 5 through 12. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why are you discussing among yourself the fact that you have no bread? Do you not understand nor remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you picked up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you about bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus is telling the disciples to beware of the religious order of the day that is a legalistic, formalized structure. Jesus is teaching his disciples to follow in the way of Christ, in the way of heaven, The third type of test is where the Pharisees try to test Jesus, to kind of drive a wedge between him and his followers. My favorite example of that comes from Mark 12, verses 13 through 15. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, We know that you are truthful and do not care what anyone thinks, for you are not partial to anyone, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it permissible to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Are we to pay or not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought him one, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. So what is this test, the Pharisees and the Herodians, two people that don't really like each other, but yet they're banding together against Jesus, what is it they're trying to do? They're trying to trap Jesus in a statement. If he says, don't pay the tax, Jesus will incur the wrath of the Romans. The Romans will come, they'll arrest him and and get him out of the way. The Pharisees and Sadducees are done with him. He's out of their ways. Not a problem anymore. Or he could say, go ahead and pay the tax and then alienate the Jewish people, the people of Jerusalem, who were unwilling or oppressed by the tax. So either way, whichever way he answered, They thought they had Jesus trapped. He couldn't say yes or no without alienating somebody. We've seen those scenarios set up before. But Jesus outsmarted them in saying, well, show me the tax, show me the coin. One of them had the denarius. I would suggest most likely Herodian because they were the Roman sympathizers. 
The Pharisees would have tried to keep away from Roman coinage because that would break their purity vows. So here these two groups that don't get along are banding together to try and trap Jesus. But Jesus knows their heart and knows what they want to do. So what he's going to do is just turn it back on them. Show me the coin. Well, give it. if it's Caesar's, give it to him. If it's God's, give it to God. He's taking neither position, yes or no. He's alienating neither group. He's outsmarted them. So we see in the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, Nicodemus is coming by night. I mentioned earlier that people are debating, is he good or bad? Is he coming by night because he doesn't want to be seen following Jesus? He doesn't want to be in any way tied to Jesus? He wants to be secretive about it. Some say he's coming, just like I mentioned in these tests, he's coming to try Jesus. If that's his purpose, he didn't get very far on it. Because Nicodemus came and he offered praise to Jesus. Just like in the test about the, uh, the coin and the tax, they're trying to trap him through insincere praise. There's a word for that, it's called inveigle. So if you're a word fan, this is your word for the day. Inveigle means to manipulate somebody through insincere or false praise or flattery. And usually it's a setup to either manipulate, take advantage, or discredit another person. But here Jesus outsmarted all of that. He knew what was going on and he was ready for it. So Nicodemus comes by night. He starts with his praise and Jesus says, Truly I tell you, unless a man is born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. So born again, we're familiar with the term born again Christian, right? Who's heard that? Anyone? Yeah, pretty much everybody. We're good. That comes out of Nicodemus. You have to be born again. Nicodemus is taking this as an earthly statement that you have to be physically born again. Jesus is reminding him, no, this is of the spirit. You have to be born of the water. So Nicodemus, from the group of the Pharisees, is being taught by Jesus not to think in strict earthly terms. We shouldn't be thinking ourselves in strict earthly terms. Our kingdom, our inheritance is an eternal inheritance. Our time on this earth is a temporary time. So Jesus goes on to talk about the earthly signs. The wind blows, you don't see where it comes from or where it goes to, but you see the effect it has. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher. How is it that you don't understand the spiritual things of God? Now the Pharisees, I like to define them a little bit. They're legalistic. They're very structured in their worship. They have a very defined pattern. You must do A, B, C, D, E in that order at the proper time in order to be properly worshiping God. And if you don't, then you have to repent and you have to do A, B, C, D, and E to get back online so you can do A, B, C, D, and E in a proper order. I like to call them the fundamentalists of the day. They're very structured, very strict, very rigid in how they understand God, worship, and culture. So that's the group that Nicodemus is from. 
So Jesus goes on to teach him, if you're Israel's teacher, how do you not understand these things? We speak of what we have seen. We know the gospel. We know God. We know where God is coming from. We know what God desires from you. If I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe me, how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? So what Jesus is pointing Nicodemus to is that there are greater truths than the rigid worship. Greater truths to know about God, about community, about yourself, about one another. And he's going on, and one of the most famously quoted verses of the Bible in all time comes into us today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I'm sure most of you could have recited that along with me because that's like everywhere. John 3.16. But remember, it goes on further. In verse 17... For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The Pharisees would quickly condemn anyone who did not follow the proper teaching, proper etiquette, proper pattern of worship. If you didn't do it right, you are not of God and you are excluded. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So what is he saying? God wants to save everyone. We, we can see that in other texts. First Peter will tell us that God is not slow, as we understand slowness, but he is not willing for any to perish and is patient, waiting for all to come to faith. So God is patient, but he is limited. He's not limited his patience is limited. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but who refuses to believe in Jesus is the one who would be condemned. So that's the eternal judgment. That's the end of time. We have plenty of time to repent and confess. So what more do we have? Nicodemus comes and he learns of Jesus but we don't know where he stands actually in a faith statement. We know he's part of the Pharisees. We know that they're the legalists, that they're very structured. Is Nicodemus seeking knowledge and understanding or is he seeking to test Jesus? This we don't know. This passage doesn't give us that directly. But I'll say Nicodemus does show up again in the Gospel of John. In fact, in chapter 7 of the Gospel of John, we'll see another, another instance where the chief priests send the temple guard to arrest Jesus and bring him in captive. The temple police, the temple guard, they go out, they try to get him, but he's so persuasive that they cannot do it and they come back empty-handed. The chief priests are upset with him and are you too? Deceived by this man? Look, not a man here, the Sanhedrin presumably, not a man here believes in this man. So John seven forty-five through 53 reads, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, 
Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken this way. The Pharisees then replied, replied to them, You have not been led astray too, have you? Not one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, the one who came to him before being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge the person unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said to him, You are not from Galilee as well, are you? Examine the scriptures and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And everyone went to his home. So Nicodemus here, although we don't know where he stands with Jesus, Nicodemus is standing up for Jesus in accordance with the law. So is Nicodemus trying to maintain the purity of the Sanhedrin and the law as they understand it? Or is he advocating for Jesus? That's still kind of an undefined space. So we'll go on further. And in John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42, this is after the crucifixion. The Passover was coming. The leaders went to Pilate to ask that the legs of the crucified be broken so that they could not rise up so that they could suffocate and die before the Passover begins. He sends the centurion to do that, and they find Jesus has already died. We've seen he's already given up his spirit, commended it unto the Father. So here, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, for fear of the Jews, requested of Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and olives, about a hundred litres weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings, with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So here again, we see Nicodemus coming back into the picture. And what he's doing is he's following the Jewish custom. The Jewish custom says that a body must be prepared in certain ways, certain spices, certain proportions. And the body cannot be laying out over the Passover because that's the highest holy days and that would make the community unclean. Now, again, the Pharisee culture would be you cannot touch a dead body or you yourself would become unclean. So how did Nicodemus do this? We don't know. Did he have a servant carrying off the body for him so he didn't have to touch it? We don't know. So in this, we don't really see Nicodemus as a convert or as an uh, opposition to Jesus. We see that Nicodemus is following his culture, his rules, 
inquiring of Jesus and trying to learn of him. So what's all this say to us? I want to draw a little bit of a parallel now between the culture of Jerusalem and the culture of South Louisville. In our community, if we go right back here behind us, we will see not just three, four, or five different groups of people. We'll see a multiplicity of people. We have immigrants from several countries. We have multiple languages being spoken. We have multiple different ways of observing faith. Does that make us different, something other than them? Or does that make them any different or other than us? Do we see the person as a group that we can wash our hands of or do we see them as a body of people that need to know the love of Jesus, the sovereignty of God, and the, the redemption that comes through faith? How do we see people in our community that we may interact with do we have our own set of structured rules and, and ways of doing things that we expect other people to fit into? Or do we see them as people that, that can enrich us by sharing their culture, their beliefs, and their understandings with us? So I think what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus is to not be so rigid in your understanding, but Look to the movement of God. What Jesus is telling us is to not be so rigid in our own culture, our own understanding, our own beliefs, so that we can understand and appreciate and connect with people in our community. Jesus will never tell people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, he'll never tell them to deny what they believe. It's telling them to understand what God wants. That's where we need to be. What does God want us to do? What is Jesus telling us in this intercourse with Nicodemus? He's telling us, look beyond our physical environment. Look beyond our traditions, our set ways of doing things, and look for the movement of God. God is moving through our community. How can we be a part of that? So that's what I want us to look at. Do we have a culture in our church, in our community, where we have a heart for the people around us? We know that Jesus has a heart for every group, every, every individual. How do we live that out as a body of believers? Some of you may know I've talked with, I, I have this theory about wanting to develop in a culture of service. And service takes many various ways. It's what we do here in the church. We have the Connect team. We have the pastors. We have the ladies' ministry. We have men's groups. We have the Jolly Elders. We have people that are leading these, and these are all services. This is all a culture of service. But I want us to look to serving the community in which we live in which we are planted. In our community groups, one of the things we look at is how do we serve the community where our groups are meeting? We're broken down geographically, we're broken down by 
where we live, and we try and do mission projects in those areas where we're at. But what about this neighborhood right here? BJ led us on Mission Mondays back in October where we went through the neighborhood and we started off picking up trash and then talking to people as we encountered them. And one of the things we found is that people are willing to talk. They're willing to interact with us as long as we're not belittling them and who they are. We're making connections. Pastor James talks about the progress going from stranger to neighbor to friend to member. That's not accomplished by telling people to conform to who we are and what we do. It's accomplished by loving people and teaching them that Jesus and God loves them as well. So how do we reach out into this community? That's really where I want us to think. Our neighboring, our, our series is called Neighboring Well. So how do we be a neighbor well to the people that we come in contact with right in our neighborhood, the neighborhood of the church? It's easy to say hi to your next-door neighbor and not really engage with your next-door neighbor. It's easy to wave at people on the street and not engage with them. What our church is hoping to do is to engage the people where we are to let them know that the gospel is for them. No matter what their origin, where what country they're from, what religious faith they follow, what their family upbringing is, what their individual culture is, the love of Jesus can go into every one of those areas. But it's up to us to bring it there. So as a body of believers... My hope is that all of us will look to find ways that we can connect with people who may not be just like us. Learn to embrace the difference and learn to share the gospel just that God's love is for everyone. So in that, we have what we call a community. And community comes when we work together to understand, to love one another, despite what differences we have. I can tell you in my 60 years walking this earth, I have never met a single person who believes everything the exact same way I do. I don't think I'll find it if I live another 60. But what I can find is that we can connect with people and we can build together a community. And that community can be based on shared values. So how do we share our values? We share our values by connecting, by teaching, by assisting where it's needed, and by loving people where they are. As a community, we kind of do that inside the church every Sunday. We do that through what's known as communion. Communion is we bring together a body of believers over a common meal, the meal we call communion. This meal is for believers so if you're a non-believer, we ask you to not participate, not because we want to exclude you, but because this is something that we as a body do together to share in the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ. In, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul lays out for us what communion looks like. On the night he was betrayed, 
Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Every time you take it, take it in remembrance of me. In a like manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. When you take it, it is a testimony to me. So as we take communion, help us to remember that this is the cup and the bread, the body and the blood of Jesus done for us that we may have new life in him. So let's close in prayer, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your grace that has given us the privilege of calling you our Lord and our Savior. We pray as we come to take communion that our hearts and our minds be focused upon you and what you have done for us. We pray, Lord, that as communion comes, that our renewed relationship with you will encourage us to reach out to our community around us. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor of Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a multi-ethnic church that is firmly rooted in the diverse community of South Louisville. We are seeking to equip our members for gospel engagement and practical, effective ministry to the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised here in the south end of Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit our website or email us at info at God bless.